Hey everyone, I'm Manish and with me is Ria. We are your hosts for the podcast today. Welcome back to the JSA's podcast series. This podcast is brought to you by the BDES Interior Design Program at the Jindal School of Art and Architecture. Today's podcast is called On Images. It will be a very interesting topic on the reproduction of architectural images in the digital age. Our moderator, Zai Malpani, who is a program coordinator of the BDES Interior Design, will be in conversation with Jukinder Singh, who is an architectural photographer. After which, we will take some questions from the audience through the chat box. So write down your queries. Okay, so Ria, would you like to introduce our guests before we can commence the conversation? Uh, thanks, Manish, and good afternoon. It is a great pleasure for me to introduce our speaker today, Jaginder Singh, who is a Toronto-based architectural photographer. Through his eye for particularity, fostered by training in architecture, his work closely investigates architectural, interior, and fine art photography that captured the essence of a space through its detail. His passion for modern architecture and keen interest in architectural heritage has allowed him to publish several books that explore the architecture in Kerala, the forts and palaces of India, the interiors of the Rashtrapati Bhavan, among more. With this, I would like to hand the mic over to Professor Zai Malpani, our moderator for today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. Even as we are currently looking towards vaccines, the fact of the matter is that at the moment we are tied to our screens. While this is not new, for our exposure to images has been long in the making, we thought it would be good to return to some of our own disciplinary basics and talk about images, specifically Indian architectural images, which form an important part of architectural representation. Thank you, Joginder, so much for being with us here today and help us unpack it. You're welcome. So now let's begin with architectural images. What is it today? What are we looking at when we look at an architectural image? What forms it? And how would you define it? How would you approach it? So it's not just about architectural images today. Architecture has always been a subject of photographic exploration. Or before that, it was about uh, getting painted, you know? from the backdrop of various things, um, the setting for various things, whether it was interiors or whether it was exteriors. And um, when, when, if we look at images that were done by, images of streets of Paris done by Eugene Atje, it was a very measured exploration. So architectural imagery has been documenting, has been recording, has been preserving uh, in many ways. Um, I mean, if I look at the earliest um, beautiful architectural images by Frederick Evans of the cathedral and its steps, they were lyrical, um, you know, um, his, his body of work of the cathedrals was stunning, you know, so that was being done for recording history, uh, a change that was happening through architectural stylization and things like that. What started to happen now with the inundation of imagery is that uh, the image is transformed into uh, its purpose has changed. It's still documenting, still recording, but it's now more for marketing. It's now more for selling yourself. It's now more for projecting your work on an online platform, trying to stand out 
in this visual, you know, uh, bombardment of imagery that we see on a daily basis. So what started to happen is, and I, I've often wondered this as I'm exploring imagery, is the architecture also transforming for photography? And, you know, yes, because uh, parametric architecture is coming in and taking over the traditional forms that people were working with. It is changing imagery in a certain manner. So that's where it stands today. Um, it's becoming, you know, this beautifully lit, um, doctored, made up image, which is like a calendar shot. That's what is happening. So, uh, yeah, we, we should soon have glamour calendars of architecture coming out. I think that's, a, that's, that's actually quite an interesting point in terms of it being a calendar shot. And we should return to this. I know Manish at this point also wanted to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, I wanted to ask, like, since many uh, architectural photographs are like a two point perspective, like we saw mm -hmm. in your architectural photographs, Mm -hmm. uh, the digital will now allow us to use panoramic views and 360 views. So mm -hmm. how does it help uh, in architectural photography or does it affect it in a negative way? Uh, no, it's, there's nothing negative about going wider than the native aspect ratio of the camera. Um, what's happening is that uh, we need to be very clear about what we are shooting and what we are trying to capture okay so very often one has moved into the panoramic format when one has realized the limitations of the native aspect ratio um yeah. you you don't want to capture everything in a single frame by going as wide as you can because it leads to a certain distortion of the space that you're trying to capture so you change the aspect ratio and you get in more and this is not just digital photography. One was doing this even with film, you know. The earliest panoramas were prints which were stuck together to create that long strip which captured more than what the camera could see. So the digital medium allows it with much more ease because you can just come and stitch the image together and, you know, um, generate what you need. So I don't see it as a dilution. I see it as... Um, a different process which we are working with right now. Mm -hmm. so now um, the other thing is uh, when you, you mentioned two point perspectives. See, what's happening with architectural photography is that you are trying to capture three dimensional space and flatten it into two dimensions to represent. So, so as an architectural photographer, you are always grappling with the notion of depth in an image. How do you retain that, which is what you can call perspective, whether it's one point or two point or three point, doesn't matter. Um, tall buildings, you end up with a three point perspective as well. So um, yeah, I mean, it's the attempt is to retain that sense of three dimensions in a photograph. Uh, that's how you are positioning the camera. That's how you're finding a viewpoint. Uh, the viewpoint has to address your point of view. I mean, if I may put it like that. Okay. Very interesting. Um, I'm actually going back to this thing you said about how architectural images or, you know, if you want sort of broadly use the word, even spatial images for that fact, have um, 
almost a sort of swimsuit calendar esque thing unto themselves. In that, what I mean is they tend to become iconic. And mm. we've actually engaged with a lot of built works which have been represented to all of us in the design field as certain iconic images. You know, for example, if you take up the Vitra House that you photograph, or the City of Science and Arts by Calatrava that you photograph, there is a way in which there's some shift you're trying to bring about in terms of the narrative. What is the shift? What is it that you're, how you're changing this? So, um, so I, I visited Vitra House just once, right? Um, the, of course, my entire experience was preconditioned by the images I'd seen, okay? And which is what the current scenario of imagery and the bombardment of imagery does. I've often questioned as to how many people actually visit a place. Their entire experience of architecture is, is defined by the images that they've seen, right? All of us while studying architecture have, have studied the masters and studied these buildings, but have we actually visited them? So our entire perception is based on that imagery. So 90% uh, of the time when you visit a space, now for me, it's easier to interpret this visual bombardment because I'm also part of creating that bombardment. So um, once I reach a place, um, it's, it's simply a process of walking around, trying to assimilate what, uh, you know, trying to sift through the imagery that is in the head and seeing, okay, what is it that I really want to capture in this space, you know? And that's what makes each architectural photographer's work unique because it's, it's a process of engagement. You know, it's not just, it's engagement and it's exploration. You are pointing your camera to a certain space that you already have a preconditioned imagery in. And I don't think there's, there are spaces left that haven't been photographed. Everything's been photographed around you. So, um, so when I, when I, took that rather formal shot of the Vitra house, the first image that uh, was projected. Um, I walked through Vitra house, I experienced the spaces inside, and then I came back out and I was sitting in one of the semi-open spaces. Because when you're walking through uh, such places, there's a lot of walking involved and you do need to sit down carrying a heavy camera bag. Um, that's where I saw that, um, Manish, if you could go back to that vertical image of Vitra house. Um, that's where I saw that interaction of form, the overlapping volumes and what was happening when light was interacting with them. And to me, this image, um, especially with the, the little space uh, down below, which is intimate, bogged down by this heavy volume, which is having its own play, but how light, what, what light was doing to this. So I just sat, I stood up, I moved around and I explored this space for a while to get one frame which to me encapsulated what that interplay of volumes was about. So, so I don't know if um, I'm trying to, I'm, I'm really not trying to redefine the iconic image, you know. For me, architectural photography has been a very personal exploration. It's, it's about, uh, it's about trying to understand architecture through the camera, you know, and understanding that has been con conditioned through imagery, but now you're trying to figure it out on your own and find that um, one thing that resonates with you, you know, which is of course uh, defined by the way I see, for example, 
which is very different from how another photographer sees. So you want to you want to find yourself in a piece of architecture that you've read about and seen and heard about, and you know, it's it's just that. So this is what happened um, in Valencia while photographing um, the city of arts and sciences. I had. Um, a lot of time for that project. I could explore it um, as much as I wanted. I went back twice, actually. Um, so, um, I mean, yes, this late evening image when there is a complete harmony between the interior lights and the dusk in the sky and the stillness in the water. The first day I attempted this image, there was the reflection wasn't clean because it was a very windy day and there were ripples in the water. And to me, I wanted to have that mirror image of form happening in the water, which which completely changes how the form renders, okay? And you wonder whether it was designed like that or whether it was designed just to be on the surface of water. So I you just walk around, it's an exploration. And while um, going to Valencia, I had been reading about, about Calatrava's work and I watched a video where he's explaining how um, the forms he derives are derived out of natural forms, so almost skeletal uh, in nature. And um, he he spoke about, and this was Spanish, so I'm trying to visually interpret it because I couldn't understand what he was saying, and there were no subtitles. Um, he's trying to explain how uh, his material of choice, concrete, um, he he interprets it in a manner that it renders very slender in its interaction with light. And he's talking about the slenderness of forms, of natural forms being very strong. That's how he has. So while walking around towards the end, I found an image of a dinosaur skeleton um, juxtaposed against his architecture. And to me that kind of, you know, arrived, it was a moment of stillness where I said, yes, this is what he's been always talking about. So his inspiration and his forms juxtaposed in one frame to me complete what Kalatrava's work is about. So that's the, the thing about exploring a space in a... What's quite brilliant though, Joginder, is that, I mean, the image, for example, if we take up the city of arts and science and the sort of image you've taken and framed from the outside, which has it reflected in the pool of water, um, ahead of it mm -hmm. is that there are very few images like that this one almost seems to give it a whole other other spin in that it actually I mean might sound banal but it looks like a fish it does yeah. it does the, the forms are beautiful uh, the way the reflection so so you wonder if the form is complete without the reflection you know Absolutely. and the thing so, is um, and this I might even have said to you in some conversation earlier very often when we look at architectural photographs, especially when I say the iconic ones, I've, I claim that they're essentially selfies, they're architectural selfies. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting when somebody else comes in with a different perspective, literally and figuratively speaking, and distorts that selfie. Mm -hmm. which yeah, so, so that's where um, architectural photography becomes uh, an overlapping of sensibilities, right? Um, so, so this is something that um, one has always been grappling with. Uh, when you're shooting a project where you've been given a defined brief, 
vis-a-vis yeah. -vis when you're shooting a project which is entirely for you you know um so there is this self exploration and there is this commissioned exploration um there is a lot of room within the commissioned exploration as well where um, you have the flexibility to work with your own sensibility as well but yet you're trying not to let your uh, sensibility uh, you know outweigh the sensibility that you've been asked to photograph so once you understand during a commission shoot what is the design ideology behind the project then it's like putting on a filter in front of your eyes and trying to seek that ideology right because that's what you've been commissioned to shoot um so um i always wonder um how architects would shoot their own projects if they were skilled photographers and most architects are skilled photographers you know because uh, from the word go while studying you've been using the camera as a medium to document record present blah blah so you you do start so um this is what it is you you try and arrive at that the fine balance between uh, what you're trying to capture versus what you've been asked to capture when you're on a commission shoot well, which is fascinating because when you're saying that there's this question of sensibility coming in right there are two mm -hmm. things that come to the fore one is of course the question of sensibility both that of the person who's designed and the person designing the image which is in this case as well as the fact that from the get go once you you've gone in through architectural gone through an architectural education there are other ways which are constantly being taught to frame as well so what would be your views on the question of control here then because a lot of photography and how it is disseminated especially is about control so what would you yeah, say I I won't comment on the dissemination bit of it because once I've delivered a project, uh, the dissemination is not in my control. Uh, my control dissemination is only what I can put up on my social media or my website. So once you once it's gone from your system, it's gone from your system, right? Um, so, um, well, I would I would talk about the control you exercise in in creating the image. Okay. Um, so when one was working on film, the control exercise workflow was was very different compared to now when we've transitioned to digital. And there was a huge transition learning process. Uh, the digital medium happened to us very suddenly. So a lot of learning had to happen. Um, so control is two things. Um, one is where you consider the frame as sacrosanct and then you're working with the elements in front of you and you're arranging them within the frame. Uh, depends if you could be trying to create visual movement, you could be trying to create visual stillness or a visual tension. It just depends on how you are arranging these elements within a frame. Uh, my work is always also centered around the interaction of light with form, you know, um, that fascinates me and that's been always a part of my exploration whether it's um, the way it brings out materials the way it you know can make a space exalted or a soft light which makes a space really serene and you know brings out a lot of detail so really the the project and what is in front of you defines how you're going to approach it and how you're going to capture it so 
But here is the thing about architectural photography. If you're seeing this frame, mm -hmm. you're not seeing what is outside this frame. Yeah. Okay. So it's a process of inclusion and it's a huge process of elimination. Mm -hmm. So this is where the photographer's perspective also comes into play. Um, you are deciding what you want to show. It's your personal cookie cutter. You know, <laughs> this is my frame. And that's where it's a lot of control, right? It's always a perspective. Like I said, the fine line between viewpoint and point of view. Um, this is what I'm trying to capture now. So what is the line doing? The line in this image, which is coming in from the right, sweeping and going towards the top left is, is framing the dinosaur. It's, it's mirroring the form of the dinosaur, things like that. But look at how light is hitting this surface of the column, which had it been a strong, solid light, yeah. this modulation would not have happened. So at another time of day, the image would be very different. So control comes in where you're selecting the time of day to shoot. Um, yeah. yeah, so it's, it's just that. But that. I'm sure that can be quite uh, frustrating as well, because many of the things that you're talking about, the quality of light, movement many of these things at times are also outside of your control which is what is defined as photographer's luck <laughs> you get there with your bag and your equipment and and then the gods decide no it's not going to be a sunny day it's going to be a cloudy day so what do you do so you know but you yeah so you see you you have to continuously adapt to what is in front of you um you may just have that particular day to shoot a project. You may not have the possibility to go back. It could be a remote location where you've traveled for a day or so. So there is nothing much you can do. You have to make the most of what you have in front of you and still create imagery that can work and represent that project well. So for example, when, um, when I was shooting for this book on ports and palaces of India, I remember reaching uh, Sindhudurg, one of the forts in the Konkan area. And this was uh, June. Um, the monsoons were just about to set in. And this, this fort is on an island in the middle of the ocean. And the only way to reach it is by boat. And that was the last day that the boating was happening. Okay. I couldn't, I couldn't have gone back the next day to shoot the fort on the island. And then the boat that I took, it had just 45 minutes of stop you had to come back within 45 minutes. So you have 45 minutes to document a project which is going to form a double spread in a book. So you know you need five key images. Right. So you're running. And that's where um, years of shooting architecture comes back into play because you're primed, uh, you're ready. You know you've been engaging with a medium for a while. I remember ditching my tripod, running up to the highest vantage point that was possible and trying to capture that interaction of that piece of work with the ocean around it. You know, it's, it wasn't on land, it was surrounded yeah. by water. So I had to capture that interaction very quickly. So a handheld panorama happened, which, you know, you hope that would stitch later. And it did, thankfully, because you've been shooting handheld panoramas for a while. Um, so this is what happens. You, you make the most of what you can, which is in front of you. 
and has it also happened at times where things have just been completely not what you imagine them to be but you still how how i guess my question is how do you work when things are not outside of your control so here at some level you still had an understanding that you'll have 45 minutes mm -hmm. i'm sure there must have been instances when you get to your site of engagement and mm -hmm. things are completely not what you expected them to be Um, have you allowed that to come into the photograph? Is I sorry? guess is where I'm going. Have you allowed that lo loss of control or the lack of control to come into the photograph then, into the image itself? You know, as you age, I you realize there is only so much control you have. Sure. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> that, that's many projects. you shoot an office interior uh, you go on a sunday because the designers got specific permissions organized for you because you don't want too many people moving around in your image but the desks are all messy you know so the thing is uh, uh, this is where i would like to draw the difference between capturing a still image versus navigating a space without a camera okay uh, the human eye is very very forgiving to clutter and mess um and the camera is not unfortunately you know you are isolating a visual anything that disturbs the visual is going to catch the human eye that is where the human eye is not forgiving okay so that's where we come back to control so you would find someone who would help you you know streamline things so that there is less visual distraction in the image that you're trying to create and sometimes you have to live with visual distraction which is why there is a whole uh, industry where images are being retouched to remove that clutter you know so share of backlash though yes of course because then there's this question of authenticity right how how authentic that image is yeah but i mean it depends on what the image is being used for and an advertisement about an office desk would never portray an image of a cluttered desk right so one wonders why because what if one is actually trying to show how people work and inhabit spaces no if that then, was the brief then you would show it but if you're trying to sell a product that's not the brief so you know uh, that's where control comes back in again everything is generated from the brief so when one is shooting for oneself the brief is loose and it's not defined and it's it's nebulous you are it's an exploration so this is where the distinction is between commissioned work and personal work you know absolutely Um Ria I know wanted to ask you in fact about commission works Ria would you like to go ahead Uh yes thank you So um very often you are commissioned to produce images where there is a design philosophy at play But mm -hmm. how do you mediate this while mediating with the camera I think we kind of addressed this earlier during the discussion um you try and understand best what the design philosophy is and then you try to map it with your sensibility and try to capture that design philosophy right um if i'm working for someone and capturing images for someone um then i have to put that above my sensibility right 
my sensibility is always going to be in the background, defining and governing how I approach and how I shoot. I mean, it's not going to uh, affect, let's say, the choice of a wide angle lens. How wide do I want my image to be? But yes, everything is going to be defined by the sensibility that I'm trying to capture. So if, if it was a project that had a certain um, exploration of playful volumes, then my image has to capture that playfulness. If it's color, if it's form, it's texture, it's a play of light, then that's what is going to be. Um, that's what your eyes are seeking through your frame. That's how you mediate it. But do you ever find yourself at odds with the, the commission that is given to you? You know, very often people will come in with a certain expectation, which is, and which is absolutely fine. But you feel that there are other ways of going about it then. And what happens under such circumstances? Um, it's, it's always been a case of uh, delivering the best you can. And sometimes you go back to a project. Sometimes the brief may not have successfully communicated what they were seeking. And sometimes once you deliver images, the brief changes because, you know, uh, when someone's giving you a brief, it's um, it's also sometimes a little vague. You you want to see something, and that something in a photograph is sometimes not very clearly defined. You know, uh, sometimes the client really doesn't know what they are seeking. No, maybe maybe you could do this, and that maybe takes you back. So it's always a back and forth process. Uh, which is at times possible when projects are accessible or within the same city. Um, sometimes yeah. it's not possible because that would mean traveling another day to get back to a project. Or if it's in a different country, then, you know, the logistics are completely different. So which is why uh, when you're working on remote locations, you share low resolution images with the client and you keep an extra day if there are any changes required or any refinement required in the imagery and you go back and try to map that sensibility, which is what, um, I mean, you all as architects do ideating, sketching, juries and getting back. And it's always a process of refinement. In fact, what you said made me think about that as well, because very often that's what we're doing, even as designers, if yeah, exactly. we're constantly with clients and there will never be, I mean, I don't think unless you spend a lot of time figuring it out together, that mm -hmm. you can literally deliver something that the person was expecting. Yeah, for, and I mean, how many architects have dissatisfied clients? Most. <laughs> exactly. So uh, it's it's again it's again that right. It's the same when you are uh, when you're trying to. Um, it always happens. If yeah. you end up with friends who are clients, then you're doing something really well, <laughs> which I've been fortunate with. <laughs> oh, we can only hope. Yeah. So, so the, this generation graduating from JSA will be able to achieve that a little better than many of mm -hmm. us. I mean, you're saying that you're almost thinking of Mies' relationship with Edith Farnsworth when he's designing the Farnsworth house. He keeps her completely out of the loop. Mm -hmm. Doesn't show her doesn't show her anything. It just sort of sweet talks her into accepting what he eventually designs for her. Yeah, so that's that's where patronage comes into the play, right? Um, when yeah. you're 
you're allowing an architect or a designer or a photographer or any creative professional to exercise creativity without exercising control, uh, then you then it's a different output. Whereas when you you are exercising control in the output, then the output is different, right? So one sticky point though, since we are talking about control yet, what happens with people? Why do architectural photographs or design photographs in that sense very often take people inhabitation lives out of the picture itself or, you know, at the very most leave it as traces the way Le Corbusier did with some of his images. Hmm. What happens there? Why are our images still, why are we, why are we so sold on images which are still very neutron bombed or at least devoid of humanity? I mean, I know part of it, of course, has to do with the mission, but would you venture a guess as to why are we constantly replicating many, many of the same tropes here? Um, see, it's, um, if it's a bare project, if you're, if you're capturing space, volume, and things like that in an element, um, in, in an image, uh, the exploration is different. But let's say I, I go to photograph it's the difference between a home and a house, right? If you're shooting a, a house, you're shooting a piece of architecture. If you're shooting a home, then the, the occupants of the home, their personality, their visual expression is part of your imagery. So it's, I think it's got to do with how much visual weight you want to assign to what in your frame. It, it then becomes an exercise in visual weight. So, for example, if I'm if I'm shooting the house or the home of a famous personality, now our perception of that famous personality has already been preconditioned and defined. Okay, so you are capturing now the visual expression of that personality in a frame. Now that could be the space filled with furniture, with upholstery, with colors, with paintings, with lights, with artifacts, objects, whatever defines a home, right? In that sense, or whatever personality that brings to your image. So that's still an image which is devoid of that personality. Okay, it has personality, but it does not have the persona there. And then you have that person sitting in the frame. Now the whole visual engagement with the image has changed you will, of course, look at the person sitting in the frame before you look at anything else, okay? Because your understanding has been kind of already preconditioned by whatever you know about the person. So I think that's, that's where uh, one is trying to, um, that's where imagery is um, shot without people. But that's when you have to bring out a designed, um, sensibility which you're trying to capture in an image. That's not true of images that are of urban spaces. You do have a lot of people in urban spaces. Now you may treat the imagery differently where you may use you know, different shutter speeds to blur the movement of people or you may have them as silhouettes or, I mean, it's also a matter of scale, introducing scale into your image. Um, if it's a large open space, or it's a very tall building, how do I bring about that scale, right? 
So, no, I don't think um, it's a conscious decision to not have people in the image. It's, it's about what the brief is, what you're trying to capture, and therefore, you know, that's what it is. That makes sense. And actually, you put it very beautifully. I mean, I think part of what happens with a lot of photography, especially architectural interior photography, is, of course, part of it is already predetermined by where it's going to end up, whether it's going to be part of a glossy, a journal, a website, so on and so forth. But making that distinction between house and home, hmm. very interesting to how we would understand both architecture, therefore, as an object and the photograph as an object. Because exactly. Because the photograph is treating us as spectral. It may be sensorial, but at the same time, we are spectral to it. We're never expected to inhabit it, inhabit it with anything other than a visual sense. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but another thing that you bring up about scales, and can we, I'd like to shift the discussion a little bit towards your books now. Mm -hmm. You had, I mean, given the diverse portfolio you hold with your photography, and you've been so actively publishing, mm -hmm. you worked across a variety of scales. Is there something amidst all of these books that remains constant for you? And what is it that you're trying to capture, whether we're looking at something at glimpse of, whether we're looking at the glimpses of architecture in Kerala, or we're looking at forts and palaces. Now, I know, for, I personally know, thanks to you, because you set me on this path, so that's, <laughs> that's on you. <laughs> My experience of this temple in Kerala, the Varkunathan temple, mm -hmm. I, I also went in as an architectural student, and I was looking at it, hoping in almost recreating your your frames in my head, but when I started talking to people there and the movement, it completely changed the scale of the, the place itself for me. However, coming back to the question of scale, you've looked at it across various forms of an engagement sphere in India. What mm -hmm. remains constant for you? What is it that you're trying to capture? Okay, what remains constant is me and my camera uh, and the fact that we are growing and evolving and you know, um, so, so I think what, uh, okay, if I may uh, put it like this, I am my own best critic, you know, so whenever I'm reviewing imagery that I've captured in a project, I am looking at it very critically and seeing how I can improve it in the next shoot. Yeah. So it's, so if you, if you look at these books, which right now in this presentation are rather chronologically put down. Um, then Glimpses of Architecture in Kerala was my first book, uh, shot in 2003 and then published in 2006. It's not easy to publish an architectural book, which all of us know. <laughs> um, so, <coughs> um, I think what, what, what changes is your, um, sensibility evolving and therefore your response to the spatial context that is in front of you. That's what changes all the time. So. Forts and Palaces of India, which was my second book, was a revelation to me because uh, I had not, while traversing from extreme North India, shooting in Ladakh to all the way down to Kerala and shooting all along every state, I was in, in a project of <coughs> one and a half years uh, of traveling. I was navigating through varied visual expressions, right? Uh, and dealing with sensibilities which, like, stained glass on the cover which has been obviously imported and included but the patterns and the geometry is then turned into your own 
visual style. So there is this constant stylization which you are dealing with mm-hmm. and your visual response has to change to that stylization. So um, it's amazing. I think I learned so much about architecture while shooting this book because I was, I mean, it's not just the materiality, it's the way space has been handled, the way uh, it's been conjured up for defense if you were shooting up a fort or if you uh, if you notice you're suddenly behind a small trellis opening in a narrow corridor and you wonder why it's there because suddenly you're out of context you don't know what the space would be and then you ask someone and you said oh that that was where the women stood behind to look at what was happening in the courtyard so you know there is uh, that's been so it's been incorporated into the architecture you know so that was an expression of that time so and now you are in in the 21st century trying to capture something that was done in the 15th century and you're trying to figure out how do i navigate and mediate that right while your representation has to be true it's not supposed to be exalted in a but then there is also your interaction with the author and her perspective and what is she trying to put across in the book so it's it's a complex mix of um, you know stimuli which is in your head <laughs> which defines an image so i think that's what it is um, but here is what i'd like to say about my books i've been very very fortunate to not have extremely overly defined briefs i've had a lot of leeway in being able to frame capture and document the way i've wanted to So did the did the little corridor with the trellis make it to the book? I'm afraid this is yes, of course it's there. It it is there. Okay. But it was shot at a time where light passed through the trellis and formed an image on the other wall, and that narrowness was further accentuated because you saw the distance between the wall and the trellis as very narrow, as opposed to shooting a narrow space with a wide angle, which is what mm-hmm. you know the distortion that is induced in most. Um, hospitality images or real estate images where you're trying to sell a small room as a very big room we've all felt that when we've gone booked online and gone into a hotel and the room is much smaller than what you saw in the image right <laughs> so what if you talk you can see through that rashtrapati bhavan that too must have been quite something to photograph the interiors for because there is a way in which the rest of us only have access now through this book and a set of other images that circulate so right. what was that like oh it was fantastic of course after your equipment had been sniffed and checked for explosives <laughs> uh, there was always an entourage that you were moving around with uh, the entourage purpose was to keep an eye on you not to help you in any other way but i was very fortunate to have um, a a very good team of people from the rashtrapati bhavan supporting what i wanted to do so you know um to the point that with few phone calls if, so there's an image in the rashtrapati bhavan of the the shell fountain in one of the courtyards right. and typically the the fountain wasn't being used so you know you but you know what the fountain is for you know once it's filled up there's going to be reflections happening in the fountain so um, somewhere you can look at a space and figure out how it's designed back and forth so you can question the role of the fountain in that courtyard 
uh, as a large reflecting pool. So we actually managed to find someone who knew where it was going to be turned on from and it was ready the next morning when I came filled with water and when the light hit, we got a beautiful image. So that kind of thing. We had um, the editor, Naman Ahuja, um, had, um, had, form, had found a series of images commissioned by Latins in the 30s after he had finished the image. So we, we were stunned with the play of light um, in that imagery. But of course, um, security reasons, the windows had been closed. And these are wooden windows, so light was blocked and the space was lit up with the modern CFL, which I completely abhor, but you have to live with. Um, so, so we managed to uh, communicate and get some windows opened up where we could flood the space with light and you know come closer to how it had been perceived. So yeah. that kind of, um, it, was, it was brilliant being able to, um, and the Rashtrapati Bhavan extended that, uh, you know, uh, allowance to, yes, please go ahead, uh, because they knew it had been commissioned by them, the book. Yeah. So it was beautiful uh, working on the project, um, being able to get access, being able to have a visual conversation with Latians and, uh, you know, configure and figure out how. So there were some beautiful aha moments where you see a, a wide corridor suddenly becoming narrow on one side and how the flooring pattern navigated through that. So I took that picture and that, that picture then uh, did make it to the book because um, it was just one tiny corner, you know, yeah. but to me it was significant. So, you know, so um, it was a very, very highly skilled team of people on the book. So the, the communication was intense, the discussions were intense, so there was a lot of intensity happening there. I'm sure. uh, I, I mean, it's definitely got to be a project where there was so much, in some senses, there was also quite some baggage to go in with. Yes, of course, there are many books on that, on, yeah. on the Rashtrapati Bhavan, yes. Yeah. Okay, so I have uh, one last question for you, and I'm also at the same time going to open the floor for to for questions to the audience. Please put them in the chat window while I take my last question, which is, and I, you sort of preface this, but how has the image itself changed for you? What the the meaning an image carries from your training as an architecture student all the way to now engaging, and you said that it's been a journey, and you've learned a lot about architecture through your camera. Could you tell us a bit about the things that you've learned and for personally, I mean, personally, how have they changed you? Um, I think, like I said, I've grown since I graduated architecture at 24. Uh, so, you know, um, with, with that growth also comes a certain maturity in your imagery. You are, so it's, and when I say maturity in the imagery, I'm, um, I'm speaking about a certain understanding of the photographic medium vis-a-vis uh, -vis an understanding of the architectural medium. I mean, five years of architectural education teaches you some bit, but it's only really, we all know when we start practicing, that's when the understanding evolves and synthesizes as we grow and that's what happens. So um, it, it's changed with the way one transitioned from film to digital you know, there was, while shooting 
on the Kerala book, I shot um, 20 rolls of slide film. And then I traveled from Kerala to Bangalore to get that slide film processed because it wasn't happening in Kerala. And when you handed in those rolls of film, you couldn't sleep that night because you so wanted to see the images you had shot over, you know, three weeks. That's changed with digital. I mean, it's the experience is very similar to having Polaroid film. You peel that off and you see your shot instantly, right? So with that changes your approach on how to document, how to, you know, um, work in layers when you can bring out more detail. So it's it's always been this uh, this attempt at trying to figure out how best you can recreate the architectural experience that you are experiencing, right? And I think that that has changed, that has uh, grown, that has evolved. That's all I can say. And understanding architecture has helped in um, the interpretation. But has it, um, so I guess uh, what I'm trying to, what I want to ask you here now is, has it increased or decreased your, uh, sort of the distance between you and the architectural object? Mm, I don't think so. I think um, it's a conversation. It's a continuous conversation which you're having. Uh, okay. You're having that conversation in your head even without the camera, you know, yeah. which is sometimes dangerous when you're driving. But <laughs> yes, you you tend to look at the road. <laughs> yeah, but that conversation is always happening, right? That dialogue is happening. So I don't think so. But having said that, I've seen some very skilled non-architect architectural photographers, you know. So it's it's not uh, exclusive. You don't. It's not a requirement that you need to undergo an architectural education to be able to become an architectural photographer. It's an understanding of two mediums, photography and architecture. And a lot of people have a very exalted understanding of both mediums. Yeah. That's, that's really nicely put. Okay, um, so we're going to open the floor for questions now. We have a question from Abu who asks, how do you feel about the growing visual culture of architecture students conceptualizing, approaching their designs as photographers and not as architects? Um, sorry, sorry, come again. Let me repeat that. How do you feel about the growing visual culture of architecture students conceptualizing their designs as photographers and not as architects? How do we desexualize the emphasis on visual fantasies? So I think two questions there, two very interesting questions. Let's take the First one up first. I think it's always been about visual fantasy, right? Sure. So whether it's through sketches or photographs or now uh, 3D rendering and being able to look at a project well before, you know, the, the foundation is laid, um, it kind of um, allows you to, um, to preconceive, right? Before an execution. So I think it, it, it gives you far more control. There's nothing wrong with being able to look at an end result and work backwards. Uh, the only thing that I feel um, that gets lost in the translation is the dis disconnect from the site. So, so if you see architects who typically work on site are able to to deviate and modify and adapt the building 
to actual site conditions. You don't have to get back to the drawing board for that. In many ways, that's what Laurie Baker was doing, you know, um, starting with um, a vision in the head, but then refining it and modifying it, which is what makes his work so beautiful and unique, you know. Um, it's, it's just that. And then uh, in that sense, coming full circle, to, which also comes, brings us back to the calendar for architects. What about desire? Right? Architectural photographs are steeped in desire, but whose desire, who's this desire directed towards? And as Abu asks, how do we desexualize the emphasis on, sexu uh, on visual fantasy? <laughs> I don't know. I think Abu has to answer that. Uh, it it uh, depends on... Um, Again, like it's it's defined from the brief. It starts from what you're trying to capture and what you're trying to, whether it's a sensibility or a sensuality, the fine line is very different. Uh, it's just that. Um, I don't think you can, um, you can be formal in your visual expression or completely informal. It, it's about that. That's really brilliant. Um, unfortunately, it seems like we're almost at the end of our hour two here. Is there mm -hmm. any, I, I don't think we'll be able to take other questions up, but um, I think we could thank you so much for being here today. I think this has been a, personally for me, this has been a fascinating conversation, though I do feel I'm going to pick your brains a bit more. But maybe we sure. Now screen. I'm scared. <laughs> I usually don't present a very figure so it's okay <laughs> that's okay uh, so Ria could I invite you to do a wrap up now please yeah so um, a warm thank you to everyone who has joined us today to engage with such pertinent ideas as we close out a gentle reminder that this podcast was brought to you by the JSAA bachelors of design interior design program you can also head over to Mr. Singh's website, www.jogisingh.com, to gain further insight into his visual studies in fine arts, as well as architectural design and spaces. Tune in next week for the next podcast called Working with Light Architecture, where you will find Professor Sarovar Zaidi in conversation with Manav Bhargava, who is an architect and light designer, as well as Arul Gupta, an artist. Until next time.